huh. Yo, it really came down to the wire this week. I knew I was going to make it happen. I knew I was going to have plenty of information to talk about. But, man, I really didn't know that this second part was going to be so so long and so full of information that really resonated with me. So I'm happy to be here. Uh, yeah, let's let's get this started with something. Let's see if we can go here. Oh, uh, yeah, right now. Uh, welcome to another episode, y'all. Wait, can we speed up the reverb version? Yeah, that sounds good, right? Nah, nah, nah. Let's let's, start. let's let's keep with this one. I think this one's gonna be the one. That... I guess you wonder where I've been. Another episode of Small Chops, y'all. I search to find the love within. I found some of it. I came back to let you know. Rest in peace, Bobby Caldwell. It's been a really you lost a really, really influential one for sure. That particular song, my friends wonder, my friends wonder what is wrong with me. When I'm in the from your love, you see. Yes. Oh, wow. Let that, let that rock for a little bit. Another episode of the Small Chops Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I hope you are as excited to hear this episode as you were for the last um, offering. Um, that one was, it was a small chop. It was truly a, a bite-sized uh, piece of information that I thought could help you in your day-to-day. Uh, but this time around, I've got something a little bit meatier. So I hope you have time. I hope you have the appetite. Um, because we are chopping, we are chopping, and we're not chopping small, small. Um, if you are unaware, I am presenting or offering the second part of Eric Fromm's book, The Art of Loving. Um, give a little bit of introduction in the first part, so go back and check that out. It is a really good precursor to the second part. I've written up a storm when it comes to part two of this book and it's been really really uh, enlightening in that first part we talked about how it how important it is to um, practice putting effort and knowledge into anything that you want to become mastery of any any art that you want to get good at and this is absolutely the way to do it for me if I'm trying to get good at it reading this book has been really really impactful so I'm not going to give you Anything but that which will help you in your quest, in our quest, to just love better. Not even find love, not even make love, not even give love. Just have a better relationship of with love, know that, and, and know how to I get get to it, know how it uh know how to properly or to better kind of give it that influence that it needs or understand from whichever vantage point. So the first thing I thought was really impactful and and super helpful for me, but is that it broke love down in four basic elements, the care element, responsibility, respect, and knowledge. This is a quote for each Uh, for care. um, The book says on page 25, love is the act of concern for the life and the growth of that, which we love. 
it went on to say love and labor are inseparable. And I, I resonate with that as well. Love is action, but love is effort. I guess effort can be put into action as well. Effort's probably my favorite word. That's going to be all over this podcast. You'll hear me repeat that in the world, innumerable amount of times. So number one is care. Number two, responsibility. To be responsible means to be able and ready to respond. I think that's kind of, yeah, be able and ready because it doesn't always have to do with desire either. Desire doesn't have to be there. Um, the want doesn't have to be there. It may be inconvenient. It very much can be inconvenient. Um, but responsibility is absolutely a core element of love. Number three is respect. Respect means the concern that the other person should grow and unfold as he is. Uh, that's a quote from the book on page 26. I really enjoyed that as well because it really, it, it made it, it made it almost impartial to you. Um, that respect isn't if this person is, grows this way or this person develops into this. Um, you don't respect a tree for the, um, you don't respect a tree or a plant. Let's even say a house plant, right? The respect that you have for a house plant. If you're, if you're growing a shaded plant, you're not going to say, well, you know what? I really want you to be a plant that needs direct sunlight because that's what I have in my house and that's what's convenient for me. You adapt to that plant and you want that plant to grow exactly as that plant is. So respect means the concern that the other person should grow and unfold as he is. We don't ask a rose to become a tulip or a lily to become a frangipani. We want them to be as they are. And we even try to encourage them to to grow as big or to be as fruitful as they can be. Um, this is always void of exploitation. You're never looking to do this uh, to gain something or to say, hey, I've done this for you. Um, it just is that um, that respect is um, the regard for that person growing or developing in their own in their own way. You know, There's the desire to have the person grow for his own sake in his own way. And that, again, does not serve me in one way or the other. Uh, respect is probably my favorite aspect or my um, most sought after aspect of love. It's it's very, very, very near and dear to me. Um, that's something that I always say. I, I kind of make a joke that if, if I had a family, if I had a kingdom, if I had a household, if I had roommates or anything like that, but I want them to love me, respect me. I mean, respect can have love. Excuse me, love can have respect, but respect can't have love. I don't know. But respect for sure. Respect over love for me. So, so far we have care, responsibility, and number three was respect. Number four is knowledge. And the book says in total, in totality, knowledge eludes us. We, we have the ability to know what we don't know, but we can't know all there is to know. Um, we can strive to know when it comes to ourselves, when it comes to others, when it comes to our interactions. But at the end, we can't know everything there is to know about ourselves and each other fully. So there, there's a little space. There's a gap um, in there. There's a gap that exists that we can never fully know ourselves or each other strictly through the mind or through thought. And the mere attempt to 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 know each other and to know ourselves better uh, that can't be better expressed than through love talks a little bit about freud and the polarity that exists this is the this is a this is also in a book called the Kabbalion. 
which I find really interesting. It talks about immutable laws of the universe. And polarity is one of those laws. Freud had a really interesting take on what sex is, sexual desire and things like that. I'm not going to get too much into that because that doesn't really kind of flow with our conversation, but it is worth very much mentioning because Freud is, Freud does have a huge impact on the psyche, the psychological uh, evolution of Western, Western culture. So if you aren't aware of Sigmund Freud's work, please, please get familiar. The next part that I found really captivating was the love between a parent and a child. And they so eloquently um, first talked about the parent and the child, then talked about the mother's love versus the father's love, and then compared that to the love of God. And they did a really, really, really good job with that. Yeah, let me tell you, this love between a child and a parent stuff is so deep because it really feels like the... Uh, the inception, right? <laughs> the villain's story. For me, for sure, when it comes to the love that you understand and have experienced uh, versus the love that you think is possible in the world. The book talks about a young child's experience love from the be- from the beginning is just for existing. The child doesn't have to do anything. Um, that love is just there and it's in abundance. You know what I mean? Like mother is there doing all that she can to give that child as much love as that child possibly needs. Um, Eventually that child grows to learn that actions denote certain levels or, you know, types of love. So they, at a very young age, um, understand that crying will bring some kind of love that will soothe them or once they get older finishing their food will create another type of love you know a rewarding kind of love from a parent a child a child's understanding of love is pretty unconditional you know i i am loved because i am because i exist it's really difficult for that child to exist without that mother's love for a long time it's really something seeing my godson really almost violent if his mother leaves or if he's um, taken to another you know apartment or just away from his mother he's getting better with it because this last time i remember he screamed so loud but for like 10 seconds they looked at me and he was like yeah i know you so i guess (laughs) you know he just kind of rode with it but that is such a a visceral pain it sounds like that some of these kids have whenever their mother's love or that, you know, unconditional maternal love isn't there. Uh, the book says, it's as if all beauty has gone out of life and there is nothing I can do to create it. Uh, that's a really, really solemn feeling for a child to experience, but it, it's really that visceral sometimes. Um, as that child gets older and as that child feels love and different kind of love and how love is expressed, um, that, that child has a desire, just like the desire to walk, because that child is seeing it done all around. We create a, de- uh, we, de- we develop the desire to produce love, um, not just to be loved, but to put love on another, to give love. 
uh, I think that's so good. To put it into words, I think it was just, man, that was, that was cool seeing that development from totally dependent on unconditional love to seeing how to kind of manipulate love by crying or, you know, finishing your food and thing. Um, moving into the desire to not only be loved, but to do things that denote love, right? To pick up something and put it in the trash can because that's a form of love whenever your parents see it. Or poop in the in the in the in the potty. Um because you know that that's something that your your parent uh, <laughs> would reward you for with with not even more love, just a different kind of love. So the book talks um, extensively about maternal love and paternal love, and that love that I was talking about earlier that the child experienced just just for existing seems to be that maternal love. On the uh, on the uh, conversely. There's a paternal love that is conditional, right? Uh, that paternal love, it can't necessarily be lost. I don't think that paternal love is ever lost. But there are ways to, I was talking to a friend about this earlier, there are ways to butter up uh, your father. If if you want to, you know, ask for the car for the week, for, uh, for, for Friday night, or um, if you want to say that you want to go out with your friends for the week, there's a way to butter up this kind of paternal love. Uh, I guess it's a it's a good thing and a bad thing because it is conditional, right? It feels like it can be it can be completely taken away, but your level can definitely change. You can go from a two to a seven to a five, and um, you aren't loved for just existing. You're loved for what you do. And that can be feel like I can feel like being used, especially if um, that unconditional maternal love doesn't exist. This paternal love leaves doubt as to whether you're pleasing the paternal figure or not. Uh, you have no confidence in the love because you know it's it's conditional. So even though you know you are loved, you don't know quite which level of love there is. That is. Uh, conversely, that that maternal love, that unconditional love, it feels like there's only one level. There's only like all, and it's it's only all. You know what I mean? Like there is there is no there are no conditions. It can't be controlled. It can't be influenced. You can't get more of that unconditional love. So yeah, I think that conditional love, um, because of what you did, is a very paternal love, as the book describes it. And the unconditional love is because of who you are, which is a very maternal love. And uh, so I wonder how a child is raised, especially in single parent households. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the that paternal love doesn't exist. If you know, growing up in a single parent um, maternal household, but having constant consistent access to it, I, I, I imagine makes a, a world of difference. And so that imbalance, I wonder what brings to the, what, what kind of, what, what that, what does that kind of imbalance bring to the world? If someone is only dealing with conditional love because that's what they have been exposed to since being, I guess, conscious enough to give and receive love. I don't know what age that is, but since that age of 
you know, I want to be loved for being and I want to do things as well. Learning that sometimes it goes into that, um, into that, onto that scale, onto that side of the, of the, of the scale. It, it gets extreme into, to one level or to one side. And I wonder how that affects not only the relationship with love and others, but how that relationship with self what does it mean to grow up in a household without unconditional love? Esther Perel has a really interesting question that is making me think about this right now. Did you grow up independent or did you grow up um, with loyalty? And I think she means, did you grow up knowing that the family will always have your back, that you'll always, that you have that unconditional love? Um, but that you are beholden to that unconditional love. You know, there are things that the family expects of you. There are limitations that are placed on your life because of that unconditional love. Uh, versus conditional love, were you raised to think that um, whatever you get, you have to work for? There is very little grace in this world, and you're going to have to really look after yourself. The good thing about that, I guess, is kind of like a capitalistic society where there's technically no limit to how far you can go with that love because you're not really kind of burdened by anything, but you really do have to get it. And grace is such an interesting word that is associated with maternal love as well because grace isn't given in specific cases. Grace is just given to all whether you deserve it or not. And previous conversation had me thinking I didn't know the word grace specifically had such a religious tone. I guess I've heard it in 90% of the 90% of the times I've heard it has been in a religious context, but it didn't even dawn on me because of how much um, religious spaces dominated my childhood. So instead of grace, I guess we could say the benefit of the doubt (laughs) But they are one of the same. The benefit of the doubt isn't given because you are learned or that you are, um, you have integrity or you have money or you have success or you have a family. Benefit of the doubt is just freely given. You can't earn it. Um, but it just is what it is. So that grace is very uh, theosophical. No, theological. No, yeah, I guess religious oriented word. Um, that just means unconditional love in certain aspects, you know. Um, the child lacking from parents. Ugh. A quote about paternal love. Um, Mother is the home from which we come. Father is the one who teaches the child, who shows him the road into the world. Page 39. I love that direction, right? You know, you start from a point. If you think about two dimensions and um, you start from a point and then from a point you go to, you connect two points together, that becomes a line or you have a ray that goes on forever in one direction. And starting from that point is that home, is that maternal love, that point of like your, your whole universe is that maternal love for a very long time. And eventually once you start straying away from mother you know, from that center, from the center of the universe, when you start crawling around, start walking, start getting into things, start trying to talk, you start trying to interact with the outside world a little bit more, 
then you start trying to give love, there's a lot of paternal uh, guidance that happens there. And it is, uh, it's a beautiful thing to see. But again, that conditional, that, that love is conditional. And again, it can't be lost, but it can be reduced if expectations weren't met. This is the love that denotes obedience, um, a lot of times blind obedience because of who they are, not necessarily because of any particular you know, culture or way of life or explanation to the child. Um, just being obedient to your father at a certain age is very, very important. It's usually punishment for the disobedience that that child receives um, or, like I said, gets knocked down a few pegs on that paternal love um, scale. Using, yeah, scale. <laughs> uh, the positive of it, as I, as I explained before, it seems to be able to be a little bit more liberal, to be a little bit more free. That unconditional love is only in one spot. That unconditional love is with mom. Um, and it really doesn't take into account personality. It doesn't take into account desire. It doesn't take into account the outside world. Um, but that positive, that paternal love has that positive aspect of, of conditionality. Uh, fatherly love can be gained through merit. Um, unlike motherly love, which can be at when, at, at a whim and for no reason. The book says fatherly love, I quote, is not outside my, con- is, is not outside my control as motherly love is. Um, motherly and fatherly consciousness. I think that's a, a point past adolescence into young adulthood where the guidance of the father, the love of the mother start being integrated into the, into the child to where the mother doesn't need to constantly um, a be there or be reiterate their unconditional love. That child knows that they are loved unconditionally by a person and can navigate the world um, through that. Can take a couple more risks. Um, it isn't. It may be. They may be a, a bit tougher skinned, you know, in certain situations. Uh, they might just have a good foundation of love and, and know that they don't really need to do much to seek it outside of the home. Uh, but that consciousness grows. So the mother, the motherly consciousness, and the book, I quote, there is no misdeed, no crime, which could deprive you of my love, of my wish for your life and happiness. Is a quote from the book that talks about the, the motherly consciousness, the motherly conscious that grows in the child, and the child knowing that. Uh, conversely, the father's conscious I quote, you did wrong. You cannot avoid accepting certain consequences for your wrongdoing. And most of all, you must change your ways if I am to like you. (laughs) If I am to like you. Like you is hilarious because of how important that is in all aspects of, in all aspects of relationships. Um, There's a love that's an action, that is an obligation, responsibility, respect, and all those things. I think love just comes from pure desire. I mean, like, excuse me, like comes from pure desire, like things that I do, the things that I like aren't necessarily because I'm responsible for them or 
I regard them or I have knowledge about them. Just really enjoy. I really just have positive feelings. I really just there with it. So that's why I can describe the like. And that like is very much fatherly conscious. Um, loving from the fatherly conscious would take a man. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. So if there was a person that lacked one or the other, and many times a neurosis happens, and it can be worked through, um, but it is a false way of seeing the world. Uh, for example, if somebody grew up with just fatherly love, they can be very harsh and very inhumane at times. They can be very distrusting. Uh, in some cases, they could even be paranoid. There is a way of seeing the world as a jungle, as a very violent, dangerous jungle that you have to navigate yourself through. Um, this does create really cutthroat type of people, I would imagine. Um maybe even sociopathic, if left untreated or unsocialized. And on the other hand, um, loving from only the motherly consciousness, and I quote, he would be apt to lose judgment and to hinder himself and others in their development. So that could be the friend that isn't giving you the information that you really need about the decisions that you've made, maybe enabling friends, um, friends that don't have your best interest at heart when it comes to telling you the things that you really might need to hear or giving you instruction or, or feedback or criticism um, that could be traits of a strictly motherly consciousness oh my gosh that mother or father thing is, is so it's crazy oof this is the part where I wish I had someone to bounce some of these ideas off of because well, you'll see, you'll see. Anyway, it goes on um, to talk about objects of love and how, I don't know if this is a romantic love uh, kind of issue, but a lot of times um, the way we love someone or the way we demonstrate love is to show almost the exclusivity of that love. So being able to um, tell somebody, hey, I only go to the movies with my girlfriend. My girlfriend's the only person that I'll go to the movies with. I'm showing my girlfriend I love her because that's the only person that I'll go to the movies with. That doesn't seem to be an accurate depiction or an accurate uh, action or mindset of love. The because you lack it everywhere else, um, that that creates love. That creates more love here, um, or be or the level of the level that we don't love other people should show that one person how much we love them, and that isn't so. The most fundamental, I wouldn't even say basic. The most fundamental of loves is brotherly love, is phileo love, Philadelphia. Um, that brotherly love is for. All people, right? Whether it's, you know, the person backing your groceries, the Uber driver, um, your teacher, uh, whoever's coming to fix your toilet, all of these people that are in the service industry, even family, there's a certain level of uh, brotherly love just because of 
their existence. It's pretty close to motherly love, but it's not that um, ex- extreme. It's not that full, I would say. Um, but that brotherly love lacks exclusivity. That's one difference it has uh, with other forms of love. And uh, the book quotes, the book says, quote, only in love of those who do not serve a purpose, brotherly love begins to unfold. And I think that's very true. Uh, as soon as you want to see someone grow and enjoy being a part of someone's life, though you can gain nothing from them, is very telling of the kind of love that you're demonstrating or exchanging with that person. Then we get to motherly love. Motherly love was one of the most interesting uh, sections of this book so far, personally, because it is a love that it's oh, it's so difficult for me to understand, so difficult for me to wrap my mind around, not because of my particular upbringing or my childhood, but because of what it represents, how close to divine it seems to be. Uh, Again, we talk about the unconditional uh, nature of motherly love, but we don't talk about how necessary that unconditional love is for the growing child Um, to pay it, to pay particular attention to the, to the needs and the life of that child. Um, Motherly love is said to be the highest form of love and equal mother gives child receives. It's the most sacred of all bonds. And it is also the most selfless of all bonds. The mother gives, the child receives, but that isn't reciprocated. The child doesn't give to the parent. The parent just, the mother specifically, the mother just gives and continues to give and gives without wanting anything back or needing anything back from the child. Now the mother does receive that love from the child, that bonding. Uh, That can be two ways. But very much when it comes to resources, when it comes to energy, the expenditures aren't the same at all. Uh, The mother's love instills a love of life for the child. Um, That joy. I think laughter is most often heard first with the mother for whatever reason. That joy for living, that appreciation. It wouldn't even be an appreciation, but really just a basic joy a basic level of just like unbridled joy i think is a direct product of the relationship with mother now the book says all mothers give milk and some mothers give honey but the mothers that give honey can only do so if they are happy and healthy mothers and wow that struck a chord with me because of how difficult it is in today's age and has been for the past, what, 30 or so years for one, children to be raised in the West, two, and especially children to be raised in single-parent households in the West. No longer can mother dedicate the vast majority of the day to making sure the child is loved and giving as much as she can of herself, but not stressing over the goings-ons of the outside world. 
Many mothers are full-time workers and then come home and still have to tend to a child. It's not easy. And I think we've created a society that has normalized just giving children milk. Maybe we've forgotten that children can receive honey from their mothers as well. My notes here say the need for transcendence. That's the basic need of man. Feel man as a creator, as opposed to just being created. That's the root of self-awareness. Understanding that you are creation and having the power to create yourself. Not sure why I have that right under motherly love, but it says I'm not a mere happening. The mother is able to transcend hers. Ah, okay, that's, haha. if I keep reading on, I'll tie it in. <clears throat> so that's the man's understanding of life and love. That's the basic need of man, maybe human, but this book makes a lot of assumptions about polarity. And we do live in a world right now that does not... That isn't a is is quite polarizing for sure, but the poles aren't so extreme. So for simplicity's sake, we're gonna keep with the male female, a negative positive, a polarity when we talk about love in these sections. So the need for transcendence, I would say, is indeed a need for all humans, a need for all of us to know that we can be creator, as opposed to just being created. Uh, we are here rooted in our self-awareness and we understand that we come from somewhere and we do have a desire to pass on something, some part of us, some grand idea. Uh, we want to know that we weren't just a happening, that we are able to affect this world in one way or the other. And mothers, mothers have that ability. Mothers have the ability to transcend themselves by having children. The child she creates is her becoming more than just herself, but also pouring herself into something else that isn't her. The mother is able to selflessly give of herself, selflessly give to the um, nourishment of this part of herself that isn't herself, right? The child is both part of the mother because it is a product, of, physically a product of the mother, but isn't the mother. So that there is almost a paradox we will talk about later that exhibit that that exists here in this in this particular situation. But father doesn't have that same gift, that same ability. Father father isn't able to transcend himself by creating a child. So oftentimes fathers have to create um, things. They have to create things in the world that allow their transcendence whether it's uh, a statue you know carving hard stone whether it's building a pyramid um, whether it's creating irrigation in certain places there are things that are able to transcend men especially in more rural rustic cultures how simple it was we don't have to go to like extremes like skyscrapers or anything like that just building an irrigation line to be able to um, give ease of access to water, to a village, to a group of people can live on way past that man. 
And that's how transcendence happens. As child grows and develops, they have a rejection of the mother that I can't imagine how hard it is, that I can't imagine the difficulty of, of bearing. I always say the the first great heartbreak is being delivered. You know what I mean? Like this place as a, as a fetus of nine, eight or nine months, this place that's been your universe is rejecting you. And it's pushing you out into another totally foreign place where you have to do so much more work. And, uh, I don't I didn't think the mother had a rejection until the child wants to explore more. The child wants to see the world. And the mother has to be okay with that. In fact, the mother has to encourage that child to do so. If they are to build if they are to help in the creation of a um of a healthy experiencer of the world. The book says, quote, mother must not only tolerate she must wish and support the child's separation. At this stage, motherly love becomes such a different task that it requires unselfishness, the ability to give everything and to want nothing but the happiness of the loved one. Ooh, wow, that's got to be hard. And um, it talks about it as well. That, that actually is really hard. And I think that's where a lot of relationships break down. In my life, I said this for a long time before reading this book. I think puberty did not do my relationship with my mother justice. And maybe even before then, definitely before puberty, at ages where you want to spend the night at your friend's house, or maybe you don't want your mom helping you uh, get the dirt off your face or the crust out your eye. That rejection of the motherly love especially in public, has to be really heart, heartbreaking to a certain degree because there's been such a strong bond for so many years. And that child is slowly pulling away, and it, then it becomes a little drastic, especially, especially when they start wanting to adventure into the world with father more, with father love, with father conscious consciousness. Um that's a great divorce that mother has to be okay with and encourage. And that isn't talked about nearly enough. And as the child gets older, it becomes a lot less cute. I would even say, in fact, it becomes more volatile and the mother still needs to remain unselfish. Mother's love is very easy. Excuse me. Mother's love is much easier to manage with a child Mother is all. Mother does exactly what she wants with the child when she wants with the child. Um, there can be qualities of the mother that need reining in. Some mothers can be very domineering. You know, some can be possessive of their children. Could even develop narcissism. And thinking that this child is here for me. This child is my child. So I do with this child what I want. The book says, motherly love for the growing child, love which wants nothing for myself, is perhaps the most difficult form of love to be achieved. I think about that and the importance of a two-family household. There's so many instances that I've seen 
single parent household try to balance the two and there's nothing worse than than a, a father trying to provide motherly love bad at it <laughs> versus a father just trying to provide fatherly love as best they can and i don't know either hoping for the best or bringing other community members to fill in that void um having a mother try to win, try to um, give fatherly love is not where it's at um having a mother but still lacking that motherly love i think is so much worse than the lack of the fatherly love but who am i i don't have children i just i see it from a philosophical standpoint is that a mother would be so much better at providing motherly love than trying to provide the love that she is incapable of providing definitely doing a bad job at it if at best so for motherly love we move into erotic love and erotic love is the craving for complete fusion for union with another person once having that great divorce from from mother and, and delivery and being born, the timeline is you slowly, slowly drift apart from that mother. And that desire for union again grows, especially during adolescence and pre-adulthood, teenage years and all that. It's a difficult thing to manage, especially in cultures where uh, the parents don't have the time, energy, or wherewithal to give the child that kind of guidance, to give the child that understanding that erotic love needs to be harnessed, it needs to be um, regarded. Um, but leaving it to TV creates a whole nother issue. Leaving it to media, leaving it to the popular culture at large, the, co- the popular culture um, doesn't do the parent or the child any bit of good. Erotic love is exclusive as well, unlike brotherly love. Erotic love seeks one partner out, typically. Um, It isn't universal. Uh, It's not motherly either. You know, motherly love is, like the the brotherly love, the universal love is, I love all my brothers. The motherly love is, I love all my children. Even motherly love goes as far as say, I love all children. You know, any child that needs me, I love them. Um, But this love there is markedly different from the other two. Um, And I think this love is the easiest love to lose um, erotic sex. Um, There's a time after sex, first time, a hundredth time, whatever it is, that there are markedly different feelings than than, that exist um, before the copulation took place. Um, After sex, there isn't more to be known about the person in the physical realm at least. Um, That person is known. And from there, it doesn't really seem like there can be growth. Uh, That's that's a note that I got from the book. And I do think that there is exploration to be had there. Again, this book was written in the 50s. And people weren't in their kink bag in the 50s like they are now. There's a lot of exploration that can be had in these, these days. There's a lot of bonding that can be done erotically. Um, that can f- furnish, that can 
um, be used as fodder for other loves. Um, maybe not motherly love or brotherly love, but definitely the loves that we um, have going going forward. Now, the next love is self-love. And it's funny because historically self-love was seen as negative. The book says, it is assumed that to the degree to which I love myself, I do not love others. That self-love is the same as selfishness. As if you have a certain finite level of love that can be given. And if you're using some of that love for yourself, you're not allocating it to those that may need it more than you. You have excess love and you're giving that excess love to yourself. It seems really selfish, self-centered. It was virtuous to be selfless in many cultures, right? Um, That it is easier, even in our culture today, to listen to the problems of another, to talk through a friend's issues and offer amazing advice. It's much easier to do that than to clean out our own closets, to really tackle the things that are affecting our lives or preventing ourselves from being better versions of us. So being able to turn it out is easier, but that isn't self-love. Self-love was likened to narcissism, narcissism, according to Freud. Quote, the turning of the libido on oneself. Self-love was a sexual act to look for release of the pain, of the discomfort of this libido. Um, Self-love was considered bad. So it's opposite, of course. Selflessness was looked at as virtuous. But there is an issue with this way of seeing the world. Um, There's no world where loving my neighbor as myself denotes selfishness. There's no world that exists at all. If I love all, if I have that brotherly love, I am included in that all. If I'm to love my neighbor as I love myself, then I need to hold my neighbor in high regard because I have to ensure that I love myself and hold myself in high regard. So that, na- that, that, that notion is really, really antiquated. I don't think it exists so much uh, about self-love, especially in our day and age where... Um, protection of one's energy or loving thyself despite thyself is important. Uh, I think we've taken it to the extreme. I think there's still a level of self that we can achieve to, to, to accomplish it, to, to achieve. We, there's a self, there's a level of self love that we can seek to achieve. And, Um, That also means setting goals, doing difficult things, making yourself better than you were, uh, whether it's physical, financial, mental. There are steps to be taken. And loving yourself as well as loving the improvement of yourself, both are vital, vital parts of self-love. The unselfish person incapable of self-love is as unhappy as a selfish person. In some cases, worse. That person that is unselfish, I think of the maternal love in a family dynamic, that mother that gives her last, that gave up her body, that gave up her career, that gave up 
um, the love of somebody that she thought she could have been more compatible with because she's with the person that she felt a sense of duty with. When it comes to children, there's so much that I think that um, maternal love gives up. And there's a selfishness. And then that selfishness is almost kind of violent because it is turned on to the child or to the husband. Look at what I've done for you. Look at who I am for you. Look at what I've given up for you. And that is not fair to both the child or the or the partner. It feels manipulative. And I do think it's worse than the selfish person because that, that selfless person, if you tell them about themselves, you'll only feel worse. There is no, um, at least that selfish person, you can kind of, you can get on, you can rag on, you can tell them about themselves, you can give them all these examples of how they are selfish. And if they choose to, they can be. But that person that's like ultimately selfless and will do anything for you. It's hard. It's really, really hard to tell that person, yo, you are not being loving to yourself in many of these situations. From self-love, we so smoothly transition into the love of God. The love of God has had an interesting um, evolution. As interesting as man's separateness from nature as well. In part one, we spoke a little bit about man's synergy in nature, man's oneness with nature, and then man's slow separation from nature. And how that created a lot of the deities and early pagan religions um, to imbue thinking or or abilities of man into uh, animals, first and foremost, for sure. Uh, early man worshipped animals, but kind of like upgraded animals, animals that were able to do things that other yeah, that typical animals couldn't. And even before then, you think of like things like uh, uh, not how I was moving, Princess Mononoke. And how I always think about that deer and how that deer had very, very, very human eyes, but it was a deer, you know? And yes, it was a God. Yes, it had all these powers. It could do all these different things, but it very much still had the demeanor, the behavior of a deer. Didn't talk, didn't communicate, but those eyes, those eyes are so striking. Wow. Um, Religion after pagan I wouldn't even call it dogma. After pagan rituals, let's say. Um, religion. Religion religion is where dogma was introduced. Religion is where we went from the medicine man or the shaman to the priest, to the keeper of knowledge, to the intermediary. We went from wild, you know, peyote, mushrooms, um, all kinds of uh, mind-altering substances that put us in contact with something, one, all-loving, something that didn't demand anything of us, something that helped us introspect. And it was from that um, maternal kind of pagan ritualistic lifestyle that we eventually moved into a more dogmatic, religious, patriarchal lifestyle. At the same time, we moved into societies as well. The book says the development of patriarch patriarchal society goes together with the development of private property. 
I didn't even think about that either because once you have private property and possessions, then you have who does who do these possessions go to if X dies? Who who is responsible for this? Who profits off of this? So with um, limiting portions of land, which maternal many maternal cultures would laugh at, um, a lot of this dogma, a lot of these rules, a lot of these boundaries and borders began. It led us. It led to us um, competing for for love. It led to hierarchy. It led to the corporations. A lot of this is patriarchal love, the love of achievement, the love of obedience, the love of servitude, um, the love of merit, or the achievement of merit is very much a a patriarchal shift from what early societies were. Um, Yet things like uh, Catholic doctrine, um, good works, garners the father's favor as i think it says and even things says in the bible or uh, many religious texts uh good works garners the father's favor so that was uh the the correct the cornerstone of the catholic faith was making sure you um, repented made sure you talk to somebody about those things that you repent and that you pay your tithes contribute to the church and do make sure you do to please the lord uh, and there was a Lutheran doctrine, doctrine, uh, Martin Luther, that spoke about grace and how grace couldn't be um, earned. It's not received. It just is. Grace has always existed. And whether it's being utilized, whether it's been given to you or not, that is out of your control. Grace just is. And at certain, at certain times, you know, you can step on the curb. You can step off of the curb into the street and by the grace of someone grabs your arm and pulls you back and you avoid stepping in front of a double-decker bus. Or, like in the last episode of Your Honor, even though you were responsible for killing Kofi Jones, the bullet that was meant for the killer of Kofi Jones um, hit the killer of Rocco... What was it? Baxter. Rocco Baxter. If you haven't seen Your Honor with Brian Cranston, it's a 10-episode miniseries. Second season, I believe, just dropped, but that first season, I finished it very, very recently, and it is an incredible piece of uh, cinematic adventure. I really enjoyed it, and I wouldn't—I don't even know if I would call that grace. Now that I'm thinking about it, but it was graceful uh, the way that he dodged that. So, um, there is a very, very distinct difference between those two schools of thought and how they interacted with their deities. The evolution of God also has been a very, very interesting topic as well. I think God didn't exist before man created him. And in this creation, we see God's evolution, God's growth, God's, uh, yeah, I think God just became more sophisticated. So God went from the jealous, the man-killing God, the God that sent a flood to wipe out the entire, to wipe out humans from the entire world, save for his favorites. The Tower of Babel, how God didn't enjoy seeing the the technological advances of humans, so decided to thwart their attempts at the Tower of Babel so that they wouldn't be as organized as they were. The kind of guy that almost burned down Sodom and Gomorrah. He was looking to, to destroy both of those cities. This God is the God that Catholic Church, excuse me, Christian doctrine, has earliest um, understandings of. And eventually, 
moves from that jealous, violent guy to a loving father that was making pacts with different people, made pacts with Abraham after before he told him after he told him to kill his son to show him the, to show his obedience. He stopped him and he made certain pacts that he would never. Uh, he made a pact with Noah that he wouldn't send floods to destroy the world ever again. So this God is evolving into somebody who is a little bit more patient, a little bit more discerning. Uh, is it still anthropomorphic if you're talking about something that isn't an animal? From there we go to this God that is more than just a father figure. To this nameless, faceless, beingless entity. This ineffable existing what? Existing what? Being? No longer capable of human attributes. He no longer gets jealous. He no longer makes deals. He just is. Almost like gravity. And that evolution has given us a a God that's maybe a little closer to what we can consider pre-religious God. The book says, The truly religious person does not pray for anything. Does not expect anything from God. He does not love God as a child loves his father or mother. He doesn't ask for things. He doesn't beseech God for this or that because that God is still outside of him. That God is something that infantile, I think the book calls it, to have that kind of relationship with the deity. The book also talks about the truly religious man is is humbled, keenly aware of his limitations, his humanness. He admits to knowing nothing of God. He admits to not being able to understand the illimit the illimitness of God. So understand, so instead, God becomes a symbol. God becomes a symbol for truth. God becomes a symbol for justice. God becomes something to seek in love, not necessarily to love, but to learn love through the lens of God, if possible. The book goes on to compare Eastern and Western philosophies, not just uh, Catholic and Lutheran. Um, A lot of Chinese and Indian philosophies had something called paradoxal, logic uh the both and can exist you know something can be something and not something at the same time uh we get into Lao Tzu we get into a lot of Taoist philosophy as well um also spoke about eastern religions and eastern philosophies having conflicting harmony um a little similar to paradoxical logic as well they go into dualism um but the biggest takeaway for me from this last part of um, part two was the association Eric was able to make when it came to our deities, our gods, and our parents. I loved the uh, parallels that he made in this book. He really made them eloquently. So as helpless children... We rely on the boundless love of our mother, boundless and unconditional. We rely so completely on mother being nothing but good to us, nothing but our whole universe. From there, we grow to rely on father's direction. We leave the comfort of mother As mother, oh, and this is the key part, as mother is encouraging our separateness. I hear so many things that are rolling around in my brain. I have no idea where I heard them from. But when a parent is taking a child to 
know, a park, play dates, Chuck E. Cheese, anything like that. The parent, I guess specifically the mother, has a responsibility to encourage the child to explore. So when that child takes one or two steps away from you, maybe even three steps, and then they look back because that's further than they've gotten <laughs> maybe ever in their lives from their, their core, their, their source of love, their source of unconditional love, their universe, their mother. And mother can either say, hey, you better be careful out there. There's a lot of bad things. You better stay close. Don't let anything happen to you. Which creates fear. Maybe the same fear that the mother feels that exists in the world. And it creates a child that is very hesitant in going and exploring. With that healthy mother, with that happy, healthy milk and honey giving mother, she encourages that child to go see, go, go out there, go see the world. Everything is okay. You take love with you. You'll always be loved. There's plenty of love in the world. Go out, go explore, go, go get hurt. Um, Go know yourself. That is very powerful and extremely helpful in a child's development. And that child goes and starts walking with father more often. Starts listening to father, starts emulating father. Starts taking father's directions. Starts obeying father. Starts seeing the value in obeying father. Eventually, that child grows up to be an adult, and that adult no longer needs the unconditional loving reminders from their mother or the overt directions from their father. They've been able to integrate both of those people. They've been, integ- they've been able to integrate the consciousness of the mother, the consciousness of the father. So moving through relationships, they know that they have a source of love, that they are a source of love, that love is to be given freely. And they have the discernment of father, knowing that risk is okay, knowing that going somewhere that you've never gone before doesn't mean things are going to happen, that you'll regret. It means that you have the ability to put yourself in new situations, to learn, to take risks, to see the world. The book does a great job of explaining that but on the, in the sense of our relationship, our love with God as well. As helpless humans, our God was first all loving. Our God gave us a great playground. It was things to do like naming animals and um, allowed us to eat anything we wanted, save for one place. But that God also gave us the choice. And that's a truly loving God. The truly loving God gave us a choice. And though we didn't know the consequences of our actions, knew that the adventure would really begin once out of that paradise. That child loves the unconditional love of the mother, but it's just not as fun. It's just not, it's a little, when you're, yeah, it gets a little boring. And I think heaven is boring as well. I think that the pushing out of paradise in the Bible is an allegory for coming to this world 
to learn, coming to this world to adventure. So we rely on the mother goddess first. Her grace is all around us and she protects us. From the mother goddess, you know, a lot of these pagan cultures, um, ritualistic cultures, medicinally ritualistic cultures, we move into the father god. We move into dogma. We move into rules. We move into societies. We move into cities. We move into cultures. We move into governance. Um, All of this, commandments, laws, this is all part of the Father God teaching. And so long as that, so long as we continue a healthy trajectory and not get stumped in any part of, you know, this um, Father God era that we seem to be in currently, we can integrate both of those gods, the unconditional grace of the mother goddess and the strict rules, regulations about how to live a good life from the um, paternal God. And the integration of both of those brings God within. So there's no need to pray to God. There's no need to pray to um, mother goddess because she's within you. You know how she operates. You have integrated her teachings, her lessons, her love, as well as Father God. Much like the father of the child, we as people, we as humans, have an opportunity to integrate the Father God consciousness into our own being. So dealing with others, being able to create, um, being able to adventure again, I hearken on that so much because It's such a difficult thing to do, stepping out into the dangerous world and trusting that you'll be okay or trusting that the world has your back. Um, Both of those being able to to integrate them gives you access to a world that is uncommonly beautiful, both in the pain and the joy and the suffering and the celebration. There is so much to be garnered from going into the world vulnerably. It gives you appreciation for the people that you come across, for the good that is done. It reminds you that there are things to be guarded from in this world. But they are not nearly as plenty, as abundant. Those things to be guarded against aren't nearly as abundant as the things that have our back as these situations that we get ourselves in that miraculously end up pushing us in a in a in the in the direction for our particular growth for our being exposed to new ideas new places new ways of seeing ourselves and to grow it's just oh man this book just doesn't cease to surprise me and i can see why it's so timeless because so much of this is so beautifully stated and resonant. This really does feel like evergreen material. And none of this could none of this could get old. Part two was extremely interesting, and part three looks just as um, chalk full. I'm gonna do better with part three. 
and giving all of our, I guess, giving all of the work that we're doing here, putting it in a more succinct um, timeline, I guess. I think I jumped around a little bit here, but I was really able to get out most of the ideas that I found really, really interesting here. Um, the book talked about a lot of Eastern philosophy. I didn't think that the it got super philosophical as well. So I didn't think that that would be um, an, interesting topic, an interesting thing to, to discuss here. But I encourage you to buy this book and to really get into it and take your time with it because this book is like fine wine. So many quotes from so many impactful people. Um, I really, really look forward to getting into the information that this book has gathered its information from. Now that we found love, what are we going to do with it? I may not have found love, but I found out how to make that, that garden a lot more fruitful and I really look forward to the um, fruits of our labor because this is effort and knowledge and being able to share this effort and knowledge with you brings me joy and lets me know that I am slowly integrating what I've read because I'm able to to give it back to you we'll leave with this last quote that was on page 76 love for man is determined by the structure of the society in which he lives If the social structure is one of submission to authority, overt authority, or anonymous authority of the market and public opinion, his concept of God must be infantile and and far from the mature concept, the seeds of which are to be found in the history of monotheistic religion. Thank you for another episode so good to be able to speak with you again we're going to conclude this book I only think there's three three parts so I'm really looking forward to offering the last of the three parts and I know that next week you are going to get that last part because that's how we're getting this we are being extremely consistent with our sharing of this information and because I've been able to split it into parts I don't want there to be too much time where you're not able to get any of the parts Uh, or that the book gets, you know, a little dry, a little stale, hasn't really been on your mind lately. But I hope you chew through this. Like I said, this is going to be a a longer than typical episode, but I think the information that I shared needed to be. And there's so much to offer. If you do end up getting this book, you please comment. Let me know what your favorite lines in the book are. And whatever I missed that you thought I should have covered, I would be more than happy to talk about with you. This has been the Small Chops Podcast, and I really, really appreciate you for listening. Enjoy the rest of this day. Enjoy your week. And I will talk to you really, really, really soon.